The book of Zechariah is an unsettling book, and it unsettles us especially with our modern ears because it features only strange visions that are foreign and alien to our culture and to our way of viewing the world. You've got seven-eyed stones, you've got flying scrolls, you've you know, horns that are cast down, all this weird stuff. And it makes us really want to stay with the Psalms or stay with the Gospels, the letters of Paul, because those seem normal. You know, in the Gospels, Jesus is just walking around, talking to people, relating to the world in ways that are regular, ordinary, everyday. And the Apostle Paul, he speaks in propositions. He's talking about churches. It just seems like manageable, real stuff. Whereas the prophets, it's like all this crazy visions and all this strange stuff that we don't really know how to get a handle on. But if we really look at the Gospels, I mean, Jesus is casting out demons. He's healing people. He's saying weird stuff himself. The Apostle Paul in his letters, he talks about judging angels, the third heaven, dining with demons, all kinds of spiritual warfare, Satan prowling around, trying to shoot fiery darts to destroy our faith, the armor of, of, of God and the spiritual warfare that we encounter in, in our day-to-day lives. And so when we look through the New Testament, we realize there's a lot of spooky stuff there too, a lot of strange stuff there too. And the whole point of this is to illustrate this point, that we live in a weird world. We live in God's world where stuff happens and that there is an invisible reality that we can't see that affects our everyday life. And there's a future reality that is not yet present that still motivates how we live in the present. So something being unseen can both be, you don't see angels, you don't see demons, all that stuff, but they're still there. But unseen can also be God's promised kingdom. God's promises have not yet come to pass in time, but they are sure to happen. They're in the future. So the unseen can also be future things that are not yet present. And how we live in the present in light of those invisible realities and those future realities that are not yet visible is called faith. So Zechariah is meant to instill faith in the people that he's speaking to, both in his time and today. And one of the ways he instills faith is through these symbols and visions. And we know this because we read kids' books. Kids' books teach people about friendship, love, and courage. And these children read it, and they're not attending philosophical seminars, but they're learning about these abstract ideas by talking animals and wizards and fantastic worlds and all the kind of the the the, the worlds of, of magic and wonder that that populate a lot of a lot of novels for kids. Why is that? Well, these authors recognize that you can you can lift people's visions higher. You can have them actually see deeper things in reality, things about courage and friendship and love and sacrifice and all that stuff. You can help kids see that by drawing on things in their world and by using them in kind of fantastic ways. So these kids' books, they're using things that they understand in ways that are strange to elevate them, to help them understand things that they can't fully grasp yet at their stage in development. Now, visions are kind of the same way, except they're not fictional things. They're, they're about reality. But these visions are drawing upon the things of our life. Oil, olive trees, fire, cities, uh, horses, all these types of things that we know in our regular world. But they're used in a strange way in order to use our imagination to teach us and lift our eyes higher to the spiritual things. Not just to the invisible things, but to things that are not yet visible as well. And all of it is meant to encourage our faith and press us so that we might go, as C.S. Lewis writes, further up and further in to reality, into God's world, which is our world. 
a world in which one day will overflow with the glory of God as the waters fill the sea. And we can behold that unseen reality in the present by faith through the help of these visions. This is Understanding Zechariah. Prophet Zechariah prophesies in a time of excitement and uncertainty in the land of Israel. So to give a little historical background, in 539 BC, King Cyrus of Persia, who conquered Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, issues a decree permitting Israel to return to their land and rebuild their temple. Now, what seems like it should be a time of joy and renewal actually is a time of difficulty. If you read in Ezra, Nehemiah, and Haggai, rebuilding isn't going the way they thought. They show up in the land and first, there's only about 40,000 of them coming back. It's a far cry from all the people that went into exile. So that means not everybody went home. Second, they're still under a pagan king. Darius is now in control of Cyrus, or rather in control of Persia. But the uh, This is a problem. Israel still hasn't fully gained the independence they thought they would have when God brought them back out of exile. In a sense, they're still kind of in a semi-exile. And in light of all this, in light of the internal strife they're facing, the obstacles of dealing with rebuilding a nation, all the discouragement that's happening, they actually stop the rebuilding project of the temple for about 16 to 20 some years. And Zechariah comes in, inspired by the Spirit, to remind them, you got to get back to work. And the message that he wants to give them is this, Yahweh remembers. In fact, Zechariah's name means Yahweh remembers. Yahweh is the covenant name of God for Israel. It reminds them of his faithfulness to his promises. Now, the point here isn't just to remind Israel that Yahweh remembers them, but to remind Israel that they themselves must remember Yahweh. Will they return to the Lord, not just to the land? Will they return to proper worship, not just to their former glory? That's the question. Yahweh remembers you, but will you, Israel, remember Yahweh? And that's what opens us up for these first six verses of the book of Zechariah. Let's listen to these verses. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Iddo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, thus declares the Lord of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out, thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, As the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so has he dealt with us. One key thing to understand from this opening passage is that God's faithfulness is good and bad news. God is always faithful to his word. He will do everything he promises. But part of his promises are not just promises of blessing, but also promises of cursing for disobedience. And that's why Zechariah's first words cut so deep. The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Now, this is uncomfortable because we don't like to think about God as being angry because it seems unloving. But in reality, it shows God's character, his righteousness. No father is going to allow his son 
to live without consequences. That's an unloving thing to do. In fact, a good father who loves his son knows that discipline is required of him if he is to love his son well. And God, as Israel's father and as our father, disciplines them and he disciplines us for our good by allowing us to experience consequences. And the way that the consequences are laid out, and it's very important to understand this, is that God has a legal bond with Israel, a legal relational bond called a covenant. Maybe you've heard that word before. Covenant is a really important concept to understand in the Bible. It's a legal bond between God and his people with blessings and curses. And you can read about this in the book of Deuteronomy. God tells Israel, here's the deal. If you obey me, you're going to live long and prosper in the land. If you disobey me, I'm going to exile you. I'm going to kick you out of the land and you're going to live under foreign rule. And one of the big, big no-nos is idolatry either worshiping false gods or worshiping false gods along with the true God. Both of those are bad. And over and over again, throughout the Old Testament, Israel keeps picking choice number two. They keep worshiping false gods, turning away from Yahweh, and eventually they get kicked out of the land. And at the end of the book of Kings, you see Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. He comes in as God's instrument of justice, and he destroys the first temple, and he takes Israel into exile. And that's their punishment. That's their curse. That is God being faithful to his word. And so when uh, Zechariah is saying, don't be like your fathers, he's saying, don't make the same mistake of prior generations by presuming upon the grace of God, by disobeying him, and then enacting upon yourself his curse, his discipline. You don't want to do that. You want to learn from the mistakes of the past. So don't be like that past generation. When you're back in the land, make sure you don't just return to the land, but that you return to true worship. You don't just return to rebuilding, but you return to worshiping Yahweh. It's returning to the Lord first and foremost. And that is what frames the return to the land. But you've got to get that straight. And notice, he says, the way you do that is you've got to pay attention. You've got to pay attention to God's words. That's what the prior generations didn't do. They may have done the religious festivals. They may have said, well, we've got the temple and we've got priests, but they weren't paying attention and hearing the word. And those two phrases center around one important idea, obedience, faithful obedience. Right? It's not enough just to do the external acts of sacrifices. Your heart has to be toward God, oriented toward God. And that's what Zechariah is warning the people. Make sure this is a heartfelt obedience, born out of trust in the goodness of God, and not just external obedience while your heart is wicked. And that theme is going to play out over and over again in Zechariah. So pay attention toward that. But God's discipline always comes with an eye toward reconciliation and restoration. Now, Zechariah is warning the people, don't go back to the ways of your forefathers, right? Fix your eyes upon the reality of God's promises. And in seeing God's promises and purposes, that should evoke out of you faith and trust that expresses itself out in obedience. And it is that idea that helps us understand the first of Zechariah's eight visions that he receives in the night. So this first vision is a vision of four horses that go out and patrol the earth and bring back a report about it. And this ties into Zechariah's promise of a future restoration for God's people. So let's listen to Zechariah 1 verses 7 to 12. 
On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Iddo, saying, I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red, sorrel, and white horses. Then I said, What are these, my Lord? And the angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, These are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth remains at rest. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah against which you have been very angry these 70 years? So Zechariah's first vision begins with a man on a red horse. He's surrounded by a group of other red, white, and sorrel or brown horses, and they're standing among myrtle trees. And Zechariah helpfully asks the angel the same thing we're all wondering. What are these, my Lord? And the man on the red horse, which is probably another angel, tells us that these horses are sent by God to patrol the earth. And they come back with a report. The earth is at rest. Now, that sounds great. World peace, right? Who who could not want world peace? But the angel responds in despair. And he says, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah against which you have been angry these 70 years? So why, why does he respond like that? Why, why, why does he say this is a bad thing that the world is at rest? Well, we have to understand what rest means. Biblically, the rest that God wants is all of creation oriented properly toward worship of him. God created the world and all of creation to worship him, and it will not be at rest until that happens. So just because the Persian Empire has created a kind of pseudo-rest. In other words, they've conquered all this land, and that brings about a level of peace because you've got this massive army that's keeping the peace so people aren't killing each other. But the, the cessation of hostility is not the peace that God is after. The peace that God is after is all things in the right place, in the right orientation, praising God. And if God's peace is to come onto the earth, that means that the world's peace must be disrupted. Or as Jesus says, I didn't come to bring peace, I came to bring a sword. So God's peace disrupts the world's peace. You have to think too, if you're Israel, you're discouraged. You're wondering, why are we rebuilding this temple? Why are we trying to rebuild our state? We're still under foreign rule. This just doesn't bode well for us. How can we trust? And remember the message is, wait, Yahweh remembers. He knows what you're dealing with. Stay faithful. And he knows. He knows everything going on in the world. He's got his people out in the world. He knows what's happening. He knows Persia's in control. He knows all this stuff. And even still, he's going to fulfill his promises. So don't freak out, right? God is going to be good on his promises. He's going to disrupt false peace by bringing true peace. And that true peace will bring blessing to his people. Now, way back in 2 Samuel 7, King David is promised by God that he's going to have a royal lineage that's going to reign forever on the throne. But during the Babylonian exile, when Babylon destroys Israel, they kill the last king of Israel and the lineage seems to be cut off forever. And when they return to the land, they still don't have a king. They're still under a pagan king. They're still under that Deuteronomy curse. Remember, you're going to be kicked out of the land, put under a pagan king. So they're wondering, okay, well, how is God's promise going to be fulfilled? I thought Yahweh remembers, right? Isn't that the whole deal? Well, That's where this second part of this first vision vision comes into play. Let's read verses 13 to 17. And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. So the angel who talked with me said to me, Cry out, 
Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion, and I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again. Thus says the Lord of hosts, my cities shall again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. So he doesn't directly answer the question of when the king will come, but he he hints at some things. He says, one, don't worry, I'm going to build my house. I'm going to restore Jerusalem, not just back to its former glory, but beyond into a greater age of restoration and prosperity. So don't despise the fact that you guys have humble beginnings, right? God is still at work in your midst. In fact, the the reason that Israel is going to receive back their blessing is because God's going to return to them. That's the whole idea. What makes Israel special isn't their army. It isn't even really their land or their people. It's that God dwells in their midst. And when God is with his people, blessing and prosperity and joy are the result. So he's telling them, look, remember this. I'm jealous for Jerusalem and for, and for Zion. Strange to think about God as jealous. When we think about jealousy, we think about possessiveness, and that's a bad thing. right? We shouldn't be jealous in that way. But the thing is, Israel is God's possession. It's right for God to be jealous over Israel. Just like it's right for a husband to be jealous for his wife. He wants his wife's soul affection because they belong to one another. So there's a good kind of jealousy. And this shows that God cares, that Israel isn't just this nation that God kind of used for a little bit, then he just wants nothing to do with them. He loves them. He's committed to them. It bothers him that they're in the state that they're in, and he's going to do something about it. He's going to reverse their fortunes. He's going to bring about judgment upon the nations that brought them into exile, and he's going to return them to glory. Again, think about how this crazy this sounds to them at their time. They're like, we're, we're just, we're barely getting started with this, with this rebuilding project. We're very weak. Are you sure this is going to happen? And again, what's the message? Yahweh remembers. Yahweh is jealous for you. He cares. He is angry with the nations that have attacked you. A God of infinite holiness is on your side. Again, he's giving them this vision to give them confidence in a future they can't yet see. But what can they know? That the God who's giving them these visions is the God of the universe who patrols the world, who knows everything that's going on, and who is jealous for them and loves them. That's why they can trust their word. Trusting God's word is trusting his character, right? Believing God is believing what he says. And these visions are meant to prompt that belief, that response of trust in the future that he has promised. And I love that. He gives gracious and comforting words. He gospels to them. He gives good news. God is going to fulfill his purposes, even if in the present, it seems like they're very far away. And one of the ways that God does this is that he brings about great reversal. And that's the second vision that we see uh, in verses 18 to 21. And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four horns. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these? And he said to me, these are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. And I said, what are these coming to do? And he said, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one raised his head. And these have come to terrify them, to cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. So we get four horns, which are cast down by four craftsmen or builders. Now we see in other places, like in Daniel, horns represent kings. And we can also see at the end of verse 21, these are uh, horns 
that the nations uh, that the nations lift up their horns against Judah. So these kings of nations are leading uh, attacks against Judah, Jerusalem. We can see horns represented in Assyria and Babylon and Persia and then after Persia, Greece. All these kingdoms are kind of throwing Israel around. And God's saying they're going to be overthrown themselves. But when you read these visions, you kind of want to think, what is unexpected? So four horns, they're the ones who scatter Israel. And what do you think God's going to put up against those four horns? Well, probably four of his own horns. But he doesn't say that. He says four craftsmen, four builders. Craftsman refers to the building of the temple. If you're anything like me, you probably sit there and you go, God, I'll obey you if you remove all these obstacles, right? Like these obstacles are preventing me from giving my all to you. But in reality, he wants us to obey in the midst of the obstacles. And in fact, our obedience in those trials is oftentimes how those trials are overcome. And so you can imagine in Israel, they're going, well, God, if you just removed Darius from being king over us, if you removed Persia, then yeah, we'd rebuild this temple. God's saying, no, actually, it's in the act of rebuilding the temple. You're going to cast down those horns. You're going to cast down the powers of the world. That you obeying me in the midst of trials is how I bring about my victory over those obstacles. So endure and obey. That's that's a huge, it's, it's, it's the word long suffering that we see in the New Testament. Faithfully obey in the midst of opposition, trusting that the Lord is going to use that to accomplish his good purposes. And that's what we're going to see. This national rebuilding project, this rebuilding a temple, yeah, it seems like it's not really going very far, but God is giving them a vision of that unseen future so that by faith they can obey in the present, knowing that their present obedience is going to be used by God to bring about that unseen future. And all of these promises seem outrageous considering uh, considering Israel's pitiful state, right? God, you're going to prosper Jerusalem. You're going to bring us his great glory. Are you sure? Again, going back to that first vision, there's this, that detail about the myrtle tree. Right? Whenever you're reading these books, you want to go, what are the strange details? This myrtle tree. A myrtle tree is a small tree. And God is saying, right now you're in your myrtle, myrtle tree phase. Right? You're in the valley. But who's with you? God. Right? Represented by his angels. God is in your midst. And if God's in your midst, there's always a future and a hope for you. And what starts off as a small myrtle tree will one day become a glorious city. Or as Jesus says, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed that starts off really small, but then grows big. Or it's like leaven that works the way out and leavens the whole world. So God's vision of this restored Jerusalem, it's stretching even beyond the rebuilding of the temple. It would be easy to just say, well, the temple was rebuilt and it was, right? It was rebuilt and then King Herod kind of added some amazing additions to it. But by the time Jesus rolls around, the temple is totally corrupt. And so you're wondering, well, this can't be the restored temple. It can't just be the second temple. That's the fulfillment of all these prophecies. There must be a greater future temple. And we see that the temple of Jesus Christ's body and the temple of living stones that comprises the church, which is filled with the Holy Spirit. So the church is this new Israel, this restored Israel, and we're going we're gonna to develop this. So if this is kind of strange to you, just, just hold on. We're going to develop this idea. But, but just for purposes of now, these temple prophecies of a rebuilt temple point further to a spiritual temple that's of greater glory that we're going to see Jesus sum up. Because after all, all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. In other words, the greatest evidence 
that Yahweh remembers is the death and resurrection of Jesus. And the question for Zechariah's day and for our day is, do we believe that? Are we willing to be faithful in the present, knowing in Christ all the future blessings and promises are secure? That it's God's promises that provoke our faithful obedience. And that's the question too for us. If we know that Yahweh remembers, are we going to remember Yahweh in our worship, in our work, in our families, in our lives? Will we remember the Yahweh who remembers us. Mm-hmm.